What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. It's your host, Chris, and we have such a fantastic week for all of you. There are so many brand new books that are coming out this week. It is mind-blowing. So we have a bunch of interviews with some great authors. Their books are either coming out or they're out, and it's going to be fun. All right. And by the way, tomorrow, Batya Unger Sargon's book, Bad News, is coming out. And she was recently on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, but I'm going to drop the YouTube version of that tomorrow if any of you prefer uh, the YouTube videos. But yeah, she wrote one of my favorite books of the year. So make sure you keep an eye out for that. But today, today is another author whose book is coming out tomorrow. And that guest today is Kathleen Ballou, all right? So check it out. She has a brand new book that's coming out tomorrow, the 26th, and it's called A Field Guide to White Supremacy. So this book is actually a collection of different writings from different uh, academics, scholars, and things like that. There's one in there from Kathleen as well. But anyways, as the title suggests, it's a field guide to white supremacy. And I had a great conversation with her. Uh, Kathleen is a historian, um, and she has been really interested in this topic. And she's often turned to as an expert in this subject. Her previous book, which we discuss a little bit in this episode, was about people returning to war and, uh, you know, what, how white supremacy kind of feeds into, you know, people being angry and outraged. Like when she looked back at like the Oklahoma city bombing and all that. But today I get to ask her about like the current state and something you, you guys know that I ask like all my guests, especially when there's like a, a social issue, I'm always like, okay, how big of a problem is that? So I get to ask Kathleen, like how big of a problem is white supremacy? But, you know, we talk about how this intertwines with, you know, capitalism. We also talk about some of the language that's being used about, you know, what, what does communism and socialism actually mean? And, you know, why do people still turn to these things as this, this basis of fear, right? So we have a really interesting conversation about that. But one of the things I enjoyed about this too is uh, to start off her book, there's some talks about like language and the words we use. And we talk about the AP style guide because they have some suggestions in the book for how the AP style guide should be changed a little bit. But anyways, I, I learned a ton. Um, I'm not the hugest history fan, so it's great talking with someone who gets me interested in history. And Kathleen definitely, uh, you know, did that. And yeah, we talk about a lot of the social issues and what some solutions are. So I hope you guys enjoy it. The book is out tomorrow, so make sure you head down to the description. Follow Kathleen over on Twitter. I will also link the book if you want to pre-order it for uh, when it releases tomorrow. But also, also over on Kathleen's Twitter, she mentions this in the podcast, but there is a 30% off code to get a copy of the book over on her Twitter. Go check that out. Uh, we're not sure how long that offer is going for, but as of releasing this episode, it's still up. So if you want this book, Go get it, 30% off, it drops tomorrow. All right, but anyways, before we get started, make sure you're also following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul, because speaking of sales, uh, one of my books, Rewire Your Anxiety, is on sale today and tomorrow for 99 cents, all right? The ebook is only 99 cents. You can get it on Kindle or Kobo or Nook or pretty much any platform. I posted it on my Twitter, my Instagram, at Facebook. I think I posted over on YouTube as well. So if you're somebody who struggles with anxiety, uh, like I have struggled with anxiety for most of my life, I wrote this book to not only provide people with evidence-based tools that I picked up along the way from all the reading I do and, you know, studies I read and everything like that, but it's also to educate people about what anxiety is because that helped me out a ton when trying to manage my anxiety. Once I figured out what the hell my brain was doing, I was in a much better position to start managing it. So yeah, the book is only 99 cents uh, until tomorrow. So yeah, check out my social media. You'll find the links for that. But yeah, or you can just go to the rewiredsoul.com, click on the books tab and boom, you'll find it. All right. But anyways, anyways, super excited for you all to hear this episode with Kathleen Ballou about a brand new book, Field Guide to White Supremacy. I hope you enjoy it.
All right. Hello, Kathleen. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm fine. Thank you for having me. Thank you for writing such an awesome, relevant book. I'm I'm reading it as I was just telling you and learning a ton. So the new book is called A Field Guide to White Supremacy. But before we dive into some of the topics from the book, for those of my audience who have yet to meet you, can you kind of give a little background of, uh, you know, your, your field of work and all that kind of good stuff? Sure, I can. Yes. Um, so I'm a historian at the University of Chicago. My first book is called Bring the War Home, the White Power Movement in Paramilitary America. Mm-hmm. And it's a history of the coalition of um, Klansmen, neo-Nazis, skinheads, some parts of the militia movement, the social movement that came together in the aftermath of the Vietnam War, and then um, organized uh, violently and publicly and uh, sort of rose in prominence up to the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. So as you can imagine, Mm. that book has really had a whole second life as Mm -hmm. a, a work of scholarship with relevance to the present moment. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm always curious, like I, one of the reasons I love having so many different authors on here, I like, I like to know, you know, what, what makes them interested in like, what, where in your work did this specific topic kind of resonate with you and you decided that it needed a little bit more focus and attention? Yeah. You know, I've always, I've always been interested in the history of racial violence and racial inequality in the United States, partly because (laughs) You know, one of the first things you learn if you start reading a lot about this, as I'm sure you know, is that um, the United States is far from uh, alone in its history of racial violence and racial inequality. There are many countries who have had legal and cultural forms of white supremacy that have structured their society. Mm -hmm. But the United States is relatively unusual in how little we have done in terms of having a conversation together about that shared history. So when Mm -hmm. it started Bring the War Home, this was before the um, National African American Museum had opened. This was before the the lynching memorial in Montgomery, Alabama had opened. Um, And I was interested in one sort of site where people were trying to do this work. And it was a Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, in Greensboro, North Carolina. And what they were trying to do is, is figure out what had happened in a 1979 shooting of leftist demonstrators by a caravan of Klan and neo-Nazi gunmen um, who had then been acquitted, even though this was all filmed um, on multiple video angles. Mm -hmm. Um, The gunmen were acquitted on state trial, federal trial, and then mostly found not to have done anything wrong in a civil suit. That's Mm. just a stunner of an event. And the the interesting thing that people kept saying at this truth commission, people who were affiliated with the militant right groups that had been involved that day was something along the lines of, well, I killed communists in Vietnam. So why wouldn't I kill communists in the United States? Mm. And that struck me as a huge collapse Um, that mixes up home front and battlefront that mixes up wartime and peacetime that lumps together a whole bunch of different kinds of quote unquote enemies into one label. Mm -hmm. Um, And the more I got into it, the more I discovered that uh, this was not about a few disaffected activists on the fringe. This was about a wide ranging social movement that was in many ways, incredibly diverse in terms of class and space, um, Mm -hmm. age and gender. And that has that had a direct role in later racial violence that I think we also still have not really understood or commemorated. And there I'm talking about the Oklahoma City bombing. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's like something you just touched on is something I've been uh, thinking about a lot lately and curious about. You talked about how, you know, they, they kind of lump, lump all this stuff together, right? Like there's a lot of talk right now, you know, especially from right-wing media outlets and, you know, uh, (laughs) politicians where they slap the label of like communist, socialist, you know, and all that. Um, Can you, can you kind of tell me what you've been seeing with some of these discussions? Like even, even since the event that you were just talking about, like now it's 2021, like where yeah. are we at now with kind of lumping these things in together and kind of the way people are discussing them? Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the interesting things is that although the Cold War ended um, a, a, a quite a while ago in 1989-ish, yeah. um, people are still very, very deeply invested in this idea of communist enemies. And I, 
I always think about the the example of the Proud Boys coming to protest actions with shirts that say Pinochet was right. Um, mm. Or the idea that, and sorry, for, for listeners that may not be familiar, Pinochet being the anti-communist um, military dictator that killed thousands of enemies, both political and otherwise, in the Southern Cone um, in the 70s. And I mean, another example of that is Dylan Roof, who was the gunman mm-hmm. at the anti-Black shooting of Bible study worshipers in Charleston a number of years ago. He posed for pictures before that event for social media, wearing not only a Confederate flag, which is a sort of legible symbol to us in many ways, but also wearing a Rhodesian flag patch. Um, So Rhodesia is, of course, the white minority rule government that was in power before the transition to Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. Um, That happened long before Dylan Roof was born. Rhodesia has not been a thing during his lifetime, but it Mm. still holds this prominence in white power ideology as an example of sort of a wronged white minority rule nation. Um, And a lot of that invokes communism in one way or another to make that case. And of course, you know, all of this goes back to the history of anti-communist action in the United States, where especially in the South, communism was perceived as being attached to a whole bunch of other issues Mm. like racial integration, um, intermarriage, race mixing, um, and of course, attached to the idea of evil Jewish outsiders, quote unquote. Um, Mm -hmm. So it fit really well in sort of the broad ideological landscape of the white power movement for those reasons. Yeah. So, you know, uh, it's, it's interesting hearing how like these kind of white supremacist groups, you know, and how it, it kind of relates. So me, and I've, I've discussed this on the poll, uh, on the podcast before, I only recently got into politics in like 2016, like a lot of people when huh. I was like, wait, what the, what the hell is going on? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, just, you know, personally, I became a fan of people like, you know, Bernie Sanders. I'm like, Hey, Medicare for everybody. That sounds like a pretty sweet deal. You know, like recently, you know, uh, I became unemployed. And as we all know, here in the United States, healthcare is tied in with your employment and all that, you know, and all these other things. But when I hear about these ideas, I'm like, Hey, that doesn't sound too bad. And also when they do, when they do polling and they talk about a lot of these ideas, a lot of people left and right are for things like, you know, Medicare and people were pretty stoked when they got those stimulus checks and everything. But you have people where they just slap on this, this label of, oh, oh, these, these socialists, these communists. And something I, I, I even wrote a piece about not that long ago was I felt, you know, growing up in the, you know, public education system that there was almost this kind of United States propaganda. And, and it makes sense. Like no matter what country you're in, I'm sure they're going to say, Hey, you're the best country on earth. Like, you don't want to like just tell kids <laughs> you're from a crappy country, but I was raised and went to school thinking like, you know, just communist bad, all these other people bad. And as I've grown up and uh, done some more research, I realized that it's more nuanced and it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you're going to be like communist China or, you know, Venezuela yeah. with socialism. So how, it, from from your perception, I, I don't know if this is something that ties in with white supremacy, but why is there such a lack of nuance? And why is it when people say communism, it, it, it sparks these ideas from like last century? And it's not about like, oh, look at Scandinavian countries and how well they're doing with some of these policies. Like, yeah. why is it so difficult for people to kind of understand that? Well, I think part of what we forget is how deeply afraid we were of communism for, you know, a good chunk of the 20th century and um, how formative that was for several generations who are now at the helm of our politics, right? So one way that I like to teach this to my undergraduates is to show um, and talk about some of those old films about preparing for the atomic bomb, the drills that kids did in school. Um, you know, you can go back and watch the day after from 1984 for an even more vivid and horrific depiction of nuclear warfare. But people mm-hmm. lived and structured their lives around the idea that the end of the world was imminent and that the reason for the end of the world would be the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it is very difficult to sort of unring that bell and walk back all of those feelings about communism. 
Um, even though, you know, historians would quickly say that communism itself is a changing category of political mm. belief that also, as you said, has a lot of different kinds of manifestations. Um, it's something that a lot of people will, will, I think, be uncomfortable with on spec and forever because of the history of how people experienced the Cold War. Mm. Um, and I mean, you know, this is, this goes so deep and there's such great books about this and I don't know, you've, you've read so much, so I hate to even mention I, that. <laughs> I'm a, always open for, for suggestions. Yeah. There's a fantastic book called Fortress America by Elaine Tyler May uh -huh. that looks at all of the different ways that the Cold War shaped feelings of fear and danger in American society. And she traces it to things like, you know, when we think about the nuclear family, Sometimes mm. we forget that that's attached to the fear of the nuclear bomb. That's why it's called that, right? The idea is that all of that has to do with keeping us safe from communism. That 2.5 mm. kids is about um, ab about keeping us safe from communism. The gender normativity, the white picket fence, even things like keeping your house clean and the model of a 1950s housewife was attached in our public imagination to safety. Huh. There are these studies about in the event of a nuclear blast, if there's piles of stuff everywhere, you you will be in more danger than if you keep a, keep a clean house. Um, and that, you know, that goes outward to how are we going to build the house, right? So, which structures will be in more danger during an attack, which leads to social changes like, you know, the way the suburbs are organized, which leads to gated communities and people wanting SUVs and people wanting home security. All of this has to do at heart with this deep-seated fear of the world, um, the world ending. So, you know, one of the things I'm really interested in for future work is, is this idea of the Cold War ends in 1989, but that fear doesn't just go away. That yeah. fear is still with us. Like, if you believe in the imminent end of the world on a, on a you know, a, a nerve-ending kind of level for your whole childhood, it's not just going to turn off. So yeah. I think in a lot of ways, the 1990s can be explained by people looking around in search of who the new villain will be for this apocalypse that they're very sure is coming. Yeah, it, it's kind of interesting, too, because when I when I think about, you know, just somebody who sits around watching Fox News and, uh, you know, I, I could think of like my friend's dad who's like, you know, retired Air Force and stuff. And he's he sits sure. and watches like Tucker Carlson all day. But I think about them, like, you know, uh, I was born in 85, so I was four, you know, <laughs> in the Cold War. But, uh, you know, there uh, there's even people alive where that's still fresh in their mind. And, you know, sometimes things take new generations for that stuff to weed out. But here's here's something that I always try to ask too, Kathleen. Like whenever I'm having a conversation with an author, uh, you know, I try to look at different sides and all these other things. So, so when we're talking about this kind of fear, right, this fear of, you know, uh, communism, the cold war, and just, you know, being in danger. When I, when I look at, you know, these books, like I've had some people on where we talk about like, you know, anti-racism and all these other things. And something I'm always asking is, you know, how severe is this issue? Right. So when I think of white supremacy and I do want to like dive into like defining it, cause you talk a lot about like words and everything. Um, like, how how prevalent is white supremacy or is this is this like uh you know something that's a fear from like you know the 50s 60s and you know way way back then mm -hmm. before some of these like you know what i mean because yeah. i'm always thinking of like how do we sell the other side on like hey this is an issue we need to address it without coming off like hey you're, you're you know you're yeah. afraid of the cold war stuff that's been gone for a while. I know. Yeah. No. Um. So. So let me first think about that question in relation to white supremacy proper, and then I think there's a different answer when we're thinking about white power activism, particularly. Mm. So, white supremacy, the way that we treat it in this edited collection, and the way that I think um, has become the predominant understanding in in universities is I, I've, I've been trying to think of a metaphor. So maybe you can let me try this one out on you and tell me if it makes Lay it sense. Lay it on me. So I think it helps to think about, okay, so there is a fence, like a fence with the big wooden planks, right? Mm -hmm. The whole fence is white supremacy. Individual people were involved in constructing the fence. But even if we walk away from the fence and nobody were to have individual racism at play anymore, the fence would still be there. Does that make sense? So, and there are people who are still individually racist and very invested in keeping the fence standing. Yeah. So 
White power or racial violence might be one plank in this fence. But were we to completely solve the problem of white power activism tomorrow, there would still be a whole bunch of fence left because we have to deal with all of the other planks in this fence. Um, And the planks in the fence stand there, even if nobody involved now um, is trying to put up the fence, right? Um, It's not enough to do nothing. We have to take down the fence. So so by that, I mean, let me go back to Greensboro Mm. for a second. So the Greensboro shooting that I was talking about earlier, we're talking about, again, a united caravan of Klan and neo-Nazi gunmen coming and shooting leftist demonstrators um, in Greensboro for reasons of anti-communism, racism, and white power ideology. Mm-hmm. So the violence is one part of that problem, right? The, the, the fact of the shooting is one thing. But the reason Greensboro is so important as a case is that then there's a whole bunch of other planks in the fence that come into play. Like um, the way that jury selection was structured Mm. in North Carolina, which is part of a long legacy of white supremacy um, in the South, um, allowed for peremptory challenges, which let people seat an all white jury, which made it harder to convict the Klansmen and neo-Nazis. The way that the journalists in town covered the story was sympathetic in some cases to the Klansmen and Nazis, and that made it harder to get a verdict, right? The way that the federal trial was structured, which has to do with all kinds of different legal mechanisms that date back to, um, you know, a, what we might call a, I don't know, a more racist time, arguably, um, make it easier for people to continue doing racial violence today and getting away with it. So, Mm. So the first book is really about just one plank in that fence, This book, The Field Guide to White Supremacy, is about trying to sort of outline the problem of the fence and then all of the different boards. Mm -hmm. Um, Because even in the academy, the people that study the different parts of this problem are often not even in the same departments. So we have a lot of work to do in getting this together as like a a shared conversation, both among um, academics and among others who are just interested because this is a social problem that has real life impact on a lot of people um, and really is in the way of that fundamental radical promise of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness for a whole lot of folks. So if, if I'm understanding you correctly with this fence analogy, this is kind of what we're referring to when we talk about systemic issues. Is that, is that kind of correct? Well, okay. it's both, right? The yeah. fence, so the, the fence analogy, I'm not sure if this is the right analogy. You're going to have to, people can tell you in the comments. And then you <laughs> yeah. um, because what, what, what I'm trying to, to sort of figure out how to talk about is like systemic racism is part of it. Racial mm-hmm. violence is part of it. And then there are people, um, you know, scattered around all of these places who are working to repair the fence, sometimes openly and sometimes mm. on the DL all the time, right? Like, there are people who believe in white supremacy or who believe that whiteness is a, an integral part of the nation and therefore has to be preserved or who believe yeah. that, you know, Western culture is so far superior that we have to preserve that at the expense of other kinds of cultural outputs. There's all kinds of ways that it manifests. And so I think what I've learned studying the white power movement, which is very opportunistic, is that we need more flexibility in our modes of analysis so that we can deal with this. But I mean, you don't have to throw... Uh, I mean, like you just throw a stone in the United States and you hit some part of this fence, right? You can yeah. look at maternal mortality rates. You can look at, um, you know, which kids um, got hurt more in their GPA by the pandemic was just on the radio before I got on with you. Mm-hmm. You can look at incarceration or wealth gaps or um, even like the maps of gun violence there in, in all kinds of different measures. We live next to this fence Um, and it's not enough to just ignore it. We have to actually think about how to take it down. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I'm I'm not huge into like history books, but I've been really enjoying your book because it's interesting hearing about, you know, just, uh, you know, these policies and things like with, you know, the way our country was kind of constructed and still still seeing some of these problems today. Like when you're talking about just uh, jury selection and like incarceration rates and everything, like right before you and I hopped on, I was actually talking with my girlfriend about some of these things because, you know, the statistics are there, right? Um, yeah. You know, uh, not only am, am I am I half black, but I'm also a recovering drug addict and everything like that. And yeah. I see, you know, the differences in, you know, how, how you know, some somebody who's black and gets arrested for a drug charge and you know what 
what their punishment is compared to the white counterpart and all these other things. And there's still all these lingering things. And, you know, because of our past, and this is something uh, you touched on in one of the one of the chapters I just finished up. Why is it so hard for people to recognize, accept, address these things? Because I, I've looked at a lot of you know just opinions on like privilege, and one of the one of the arguments is that if we acknowledge it, then then it challenges you know our current status or and stuff like that. So do you think that's a main a main factor, or are there other? reasons people deny that these things are still happening? I mean, I think there's all kinds of reasons that it is hard to address this problem. Um, Mm. I mean, I'll say for myself that the first time I read about systemic racism in college, you know, it's, I think, and and my my students talk about this too, I think it's very common, if you've never thought about it this way, to have a feeling of like, oh my God, am I culpable here? You know, Mm -hmm. like, am I um, is there a way that I am complicit? Like, I, I, like if I am individually a person who believes in multiculturalism and in anti-racism, um, like, like there's a, there's a really sort of, um, powerful sadness about the, the moment when you realize that that's not mm-hmm. enough to do those things. Right. Um, and I don't mean to equate that at all with the, constant violence and inequality faced by our BIPOC folks. Um, But I think that um, for white people who are encountering this mode of thinking for the first time, it can be very disconcerting. And I think that that's one reason. Mm -hmm. But I think it also has to do with like, um, and I'm sorry to be a historian here. And there is a way that like when you (laughs) when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? But, um, But there is a way that I think everybody on both sides of our very, very deeply polarized politics right now, mm-hmm. people are really crying out for history. I think even something like make America great again, that is mm. a argument about history, right? Like that, that has a, a historical argument about what is America? When was it great? Who is mm-hmm. included? Um, yeah. And, and can it be done again? I mean, like those are historical arguments. That's not just a political slogan. That is a, a set of claims about our shared past. So as a historian, I really think that part of the sort of inability to confront this big set of problems has to do with how little we as a country have talked about this shared history. So for instance, things like um, uh, Jamel Bowie has a fantastic chapter in this collection about the the lynching memorial in Montgomery um, and does a beautiful job getting into that. But many people still think of lynching as being something faced only, or at least a, a majority, by African-American men in the South in a very specific historical moment, when in fact it was a tool of mass violence that was also used against Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, against leftists who were doing labor organizing, against women who refused to get married, against all kinds of people throughout our history. Um, And I think that connecting those histories shows us that we have something um, in common that can be a really powerful way to think about coalition building and also that there's work to do to get past Mm -hmm. this set of occurrences. Yeah. And, you know, with that, because you you have chapters in the book where you you talk about, uh, you know, the the history of the treatment of, you know, Chinese Americans and, you know, uh, immigration. I think I just finished the chapter on uh, the the start of Islamophobia right after 9-11 and all these other things with, you know, what what people call like the culture wars. Do you see this kind of division among groups? Whereas if we kind of recognize like the, the bigger picture people could be a little bit more united in fighting against, you know, these, these issues with white supremacy. Yes. And so let me now go to my one plank in the fence, which is the white power movement. And again, just to be totally clear, I am not painting with the same brush people who sort of passively benefit from white supremacy with people who are violent racist activists who are attempting to wage war on the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm now going to talk about that second group of people. So neo-Nazis, Klansmen, militant right activists, et cetera. Um, when we're thinking about that group of people, one of the things that commonly happens is that we get stories about only a tiny fraction of what's happening. So mm. 
you can dutifully read every story that comes out about the, the Proud Boys and you're really only seeing a tiny fraction of this groundswell of activity. Or even more poignantly, we often read stories and remember mass violence in really um, kind of atomizing ways. So we read about the shooting at the Tree of Life synagogue as anti-Semitic violence, the shooting at the El Paso Walmart as anti-Latino violence, the shooting mm -hmm. in Charleston as anti-Black violence, the shooting in Christchurch as Islamophobic violence. And they are those things, right? But all of those gunmen were also white power activists who share an ideology, who write the same kinds of things in their manifestos, who are in some cases connected with each other through social networks. And I think that making that clear that we're dealing with a social movement and not just quote unquote lone wolves mm -hmm. does a lot of really important things. First of all, it shines light on this movement in ways that the white power movement has worked really hard to avoid. So I'm always in favor of doing that. Mm -hmm. um, and also it creates these kinds of coalition possibilities that I don't know if they were there before. So all of a sudden people who attend the synagogue of tree of life have something in common with the communities impacted in El Paso and Christchurch and Charleston. Mm -hmm. Those, all those communities don't have the same kinds of resources and the same levels of voice, but banded together, perhaps they can get somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, I was literally just thinking about this, uh, yesterday, you know, uh, I, I, I was reading something about, you know, the tree, uh, the tree of life synagogue shooting. And, you know, then I was thinking about, you know, what happened, uh, with, you know, the Charleston shooting and everything like that. And I'm like, you know, there's similarities because I see, I, I see some people like looking at them as different when it should be like, Hey, let's join together. Because like you said, it's coming from this same kind of ideology and something you touched on is what I've been, uh, one thing I've been meaning to ask you about, like you start off the book with the AP style guide and suggestions uh, you have for some like changes and everything like that. So two things, like real briefly, can you kind of explain uh, for all the non-writers out there who are listening? Yes. I, I don't think a lot of people know what a style guide is or, or even yes. an AP style guide. Uh, can you kind of touch on that, but then kind of explain the, you know, why you believe it's important that they, they take a look at some of these words and terminology that they're using? Absolutely. So this is something that came up for me because of doing a whole bunch of interviews about, you know, the string of events that has been in the public eye since Bring the War Home came out. So there was first the Unite the Right rally in, in um, Charlottesville. And then there were, you know, the, the former President Trump's remarks about the Proud Boys and the second debate. And then, of course, January 6th. So the way it works for many newsrooms is that people get thrown onto a beat. And they have to really quickly figure out kind of the context for the story they're going to write. Mm -hmm. um, and they do part of that through interviews with experts, but they also do part of that through this book called The Associated Press Style Guide, which, you know, I remember using when I was a, a writer in my college newspaper. Like, it's just, a, <laughs> you know, it has everything from sort of like, do you or do you not capitalize this word to some questions about like which words should and shouldn't be used for what reasons. Um, and it guides a lot of really important things. and so. At some point, I picked it up to look again because I was getting a number of the same questions. And I'm so interested in this. Um, and I'll just say, if, if there are AP people listening, um, <laughs> far be it for me to tell you what the changes should be or how the changes work. I'm not a journalist. I don't run a newsroom. But I do think we should have a conversation because the language in this book is pretty far in a lot of cases from kind of the accepted standards of the field on the scholarly side. So also there are just huge absences. So for instance, there are long entries in this book about ISIS, about Al Qaeda, even about the Irish Republican Army, which has really not been in the headlines for a while. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's nothing on the Klan. There's nothing on neo-Nazism. There is a sort of halfway written thing on the alt-right that's not even current anymore. Um, and it just struck me that there's so much that scholars can sort of share about basic context and best practices mm -hmm. that would help reporters start at least from, uh, I don't know, start from, a, 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 it moves the starting line forward. How about that? Yeah. So what are, what do you, what do you think are some of the issues? Like, like there's some words in there that you're like, you know, for example, I think you, uh, you just mentioned like that idea of the lone wolf. And for me, that, that, that makes sense. Do you think 
by them using certain terminology or words that it's perpetuating like a false idea or, yeah. you know, is it a bit more complicated? Yeah, absolutely. So the lone wolf is is sort of my uh, soapbox contribution. <laughs> and I actually have a full essay, as you know, in this volume called um, Not Lone Wolves or something like that. No Lone Wolves. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and the reason for that one is that the white power movement co-created the idea of the lone wolf and has deliberately used that idea to avoid culpability. Mm. Um, I think that we should not be accepting analytical terms from people who are making them up to obscure what they're doing. Yeah. Um, especially when the, what they're doing is coordinated war on the nation. I mean, like, it's just, there's no question about that one. There's some other good examples um, having to do with the history of immigration. So one of the things that often happens um, in you know, uh, regardless of the racial group coming in, but whenever there's a wave of immigration, quote unquote, um, we often hear language like wave, flood, tide to mm -hmm. sort of, which sort of even subliminally uh, suggests that we're going to be flooded or overrun. Or when there is a new arriving group of immigrants, we also often hear things like, you know, the more pejorative side of it is like horde or um, animal metaphors, right? Mm. Um, and these are, historians are very familiar with this because this happens like clockwork every time there's a newly arrived group of people, um, I don't, at least since the late 1800s, but I maybe forever. Um, and so historians, whatever we are reading and we see a word like a flood of people has arrived at the southern border, blah, 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 blah. We're yeah. always like, hey, don't do that. Um, but it's one of those things that you might not notice unless you've sort of read a lot of this history. So it's a place where I think that um, the language can be really damaging and where people who have thought about it a lot have some ideas about how we could start to correct that problem. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting, too, because. You kind of see uh, just, you know, whether it's politicians or pundits or whoever it is, they latch on to certain words, too. And it kind of becomes like this go to. I, I always find it interesting, you know, uh, and I might be picking on, you know, people on the right. But like from from like seeing clips of like Fox News and then somebody going to a Trump rally, you see the same words, right? Yeah. Like how they're kind of intertwined. And so that's kind oh, yeah. of why I mean, why, they're talking yeah. points. Often they're deliberate talking points. And so like. So th these struggles about information are really important when we're thinking about how we confront a social problem. So, mm. for instance, after the El Paso shooting, there was even a GOP talking points memo that went around. I think it was some newspaper in Tampa that found it. Um, but it said, don't talk about white nationalism or white power violence being the problem. Only talk about mental health crisis. Mm. Direct the conversation away from this. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm sure that there's a political upside to somebody somewhere doing that, that the most generous interpretation I can think of is that they're trying to, you know, mobilize around mental health, which is an important problem. Um, of yeah. course, those of us who are more pessimistic than that wonder <laughs> why the GOP needs to direct our attention away from this. Um, yeah. And I think that's becoming a more and more pressing question as we come through, you know, the uh, aftermath of January 6th and the reluctance of people mm -hmm. to engage that event and to talk about what happened. Um, yeah. But in all of these cases, the way we talk about things and the way we tell these stories is deeply important to how people perceive the information and whether things stick with people and um, what can happen next. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the mental health thing is kind of, uh, you know, my, my soapbox that I jump on because even yeah. when they, even when they say that after, you know, a mass shooting or something, I'm like, okay, so are you going to fund board, you know, mental health care in the country? You know, they, yeah. that, it never transitions that like, oh, we don't have a gun problem. We have a mental health. It's like, okay, we'll give more funding. But you know, uh, yeah. on, on that topic of uh, the lone wolf, I'm curious, like, because, uh, you know, I, I look at, you know, just flawed logic and fallacies and stuff. And there's like the no true Scotsman fallacy. Is that kind of like a way that they use to like distance a, a specific person or their act from their group by saying like, oh, well, no, no true person of our party would do that. Or, you know, or if uh, somebody does a, like a, a, a religious act or they're part of a religion and they do something terrible, like a mass shooting or whatever, they say, yeah. oh, well, they're not a real Christian. Is it kind of that manipulation where yes. with the lone wolf um, idea? And one place that we hear that a lot is people saying, how dare you say that any veteran anywhere could ever possibly be involved in an act of violence against uh, the country? 
Yeah. And they, people say sometimes like to, to say anything like that is to smear all of our veterans. Um, and of course, you know, the, the historical record, totally devoid of interpretation, the historical record does not support that position because um, not a large number, not a large percentage, but veterans have been involved in violence against the country many times now, um, uh-huh. perhaps most prominently in the Oklahoma City bombing. Yeah. In many cases, this has happened. So, I mean, the it's just a completely indefensible argument. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm happy to talk more about uh, precisely what I think about uh, the relationship between warfare and white power violence, if you want to. But but I mean, on the way there, I, this is all the, the lone wolf one particularly comes out of a deliberate strategy adopted in 1983 called leaderless resistance, mm. which is. Basically, just self-style terrorism. The idea that a few activists could work on their own or um, in a small cell without communication with other cells and without communication with movement leadership. Um, mm-hmm. And that was incredibly effective for this movement. It was implemented to make it more difficult for FBI and ATF uh, informants to infiltrate groups and to make it more difficult to prosecute people in court. But the bigger legacy of that strategy has been this idea of the lone wolf gunman, the idea that um, this was just a one off. This was just a bad like a bad guy or a few disaffected radicals or a few bad apples Mm -hmm. that has stopped us from prosecuting and understanding what this is, which is a broad based social movement that has been trying since 1983 to overthrow the government and create a white ethno state. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, something that comes to mind too, just maybe because you, you said the term bad apples is I think about that with, uh, you know, police brutality or police violence and Mm -hmm. they use the bad apple idea when, you know, when you look at it, there's so much just terrible training, a lack of ongoing training, uh, a lack of de-escalation training and all that. And maybe, yeah, if you would like to, like, how is this involved with, you know, or or are there two different things, like with this idea of like warfare and all that? Yeah. So the interesting thing about the white power movement is that um, with white power and clan activity over the kind of extra long 20th century. So from the end of the civil war forward, the best predictor for surges in vigilante violence uh, committed by groups like this is the aftermath of warfare. Mm. And it turns out that that's a better predictor for this activity than immigration, populism, poverty, um, gains in uh, racial progress, anything else like that. The biggest predictor is the aftermath of warfare. So when I started this book, I wondered, was I going to discover Sorry, talking about bringing the war home now, but was I going to discover that this is sort of like disaffected veterans who can't stop fighting? Because, you know, I've seen Rambo just like we've all seen Rambo. <laughs> yeah. um, it turns out really not to be that for the most part, because the sociology shows that across um, our society, and this is true in Australia and the UK also, um, everybody is more violent in the aftermath of warfare, not just men, not just people who served Um but women and children and elderly people, everyone, um, all the measures of violence go up in the aftermath of warfare. So mm. while we do see veterans and active duty troops assuming leadership positions in a lot of these groups and sharing military training and tactics in ways that escalate violence, I think the more sort of lasting thing that stuck with me is that what they're doing is figuring out how to exploit that aftermath mm. period and sort of opportunistically recruit people's violent tendencies for their own purposes. Ooh, yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, uh, since I only have a little bit more of your time, Kathleen, one of the, one of the parts that I found interesting, just because I'm constantly looking at issues with capitalism, yeah. um, but you talk about, you know, capitalism being intertwined with white supremacy and uh, a book that I loved that came out earlier this year was the sum of us from Heather McGee. Did you read that by chance? No, I didn't fantastic book it, it talks about just you know uh the lack of like social mobility for like you know black communities yeah, and stuff. Yeah. How, how it affects you know everybody you know so in in this topic can you kind of briefly explain you have a whole chapter on this you know in the book but how capitalism is tied into white supremacy and maybe affects you know social mobility and i think it's very relevant because at the time of recording this there are worker strikes going on across the country there are record numbers of people quitting their jobs because work sucks and all this so (laughs) so can you kind of talk about how white supremacy ties into capitalism 
Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, when we're thinking about white power activism, one of the things that is a kind of a push factor into these groups is economic scarcity. Um, but then, as you say, there's also a great chapter in this volume that we were able to excerpt from Kienga Yamada Taylor's fantastic book, Race for Profit, um, which is about uh, sort of the way that capitalism has has impacted um, the, the disparity of wealth in African-American communities. So she looks at redlining. She looks at the ways that people were and were not able to save, the ways that people were and were not able to figure out social mobility. Mm -hmm. um, and really identifies this, she calls it a culture of racism. And it's, it's this totally encompassing way that in every part of Black life, things are bounded and delimited by race, right? Um, and that essay is just great. She's now also just won a MacArthur Genius Award thing. Mm. Um, I'm so happy to have her in the book. And, and it's one example of how many um, incredible thinkers are in this collection. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I really enjoyed that part. And, you know, like when I, when I look at, you know, just the, the, the sum of the book, right. With all these different topics and essays from these amazing people and everything, um, and the books coming out, we'll probably be releasing this during launch week, but I'm always curious, you know, maybe it's cause my background's in marketing too, but like, <laughs> who, who is this book? for right like is it people interested in history is it more for academics like who did you have in mind as you were putting all of this together and you know structuring the topics you wanted to include and all of that thank you for that question i think that historians particularly don't always ask ourselves this question <laughs> um i think so this one is for everybody um, as we talked about, there's a section at the beginning that is really for newsrooms thinking about how to mm. cover these issues. Um, there's a lot of material in here for just people who would like to understand more about any one of these topics. And, you know, we cover everything from the history of legal exclusions and immigration law up mm -hmm. to this idea of the lone wolf gunman that's structuring the way we think about January 6th right now. Um, and, you know, Ramon Gutierrez and I, um, my colleague, this came from a academic conference, but really early on, it was clear to us that a lot of this work has urgent meaning for a wider audience. So we, mm -hmm. we tried to go and get chapters like um, Kianga Yamada Taylor's chapter, um, Jamal Bowie's essay. There's a piece in there by Rebecca Solnit that's a fantastic piece on violence against women that um, you know, I've taught in class every year since I found it. And um, now it's in this volume. I'm so delighted that it's there. Um, there's a great Judith Butler piece in this in this volume. And all of these are meant to sort of create um, just a starting point for people who might like to read about this so that they can find these people and they can find something like Adam Goodman's spectacular work on the history of deportation. And then they can go read his book. Um, mm -hmm. And I believe that it also has, and I, I don't have my physical copy yet, so I have to double check for myself <laughs> when it gets here. But one of the things we really tried to do was make the index usable so you can go looking for topical information, um, which is not always true about academic volumes. But this one really is meant for people who would like to learn about any or all of these issues. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let, let me tell you, somebody who reads an insane amount of books, I really, I really like how this book is structured and each one kind of has like a summary conclusion to like, Hey, this is why you should care. This is what's going on. And, you know, it kind of like brings it all together too. But I, I, I do enjoy how just about anybody can pick this up and see that. I, I think when we talk about white supremacy, we think about just one specific, we think about the people marching with tiki torches and shouting yeah. this bill, you know what I mean? And yeah. this you know, I'm not even done with the book yet, but it's kind of opened my eyes to be like, oh, geez, like this is kind of like touching all sorts of areas. So, so yeah, I, I think you guys did a great job. So for, for everybody who, you know, is interested, wants to grab a copy of the book, can you, can you let us know not only when the launch is, but also where people can follow up with you, your work, the next book you write and all that kind of good stuff? Oh, you bet. Thank you so much. And thank you for the kind words about the organization. I hope I, I'm just so glad when people can can read something like this and, yeah. and I bungled it. So that's great. Um, so so yes. So um, we have, I believe, a 30 percent off code on my Twitter right now. Ooh. So if you'd like to order this book directly from the press, you can find me at Kathleen underscore Baloo at, on Twitter. Um, 
And of course, the book is available um, from University of California Press it's called A Field Guide to White Supremacy. Um, it's on Kindle. It's on, um, you know, all of the usual online booksellers. Um, and then let's see. Yes, I'm also working on another book. Oh, um, what's that one about? We're a couple of years out from that one. <laughs> so that one will be called Home at the End of the World. And it's about um, sort of histories of gun violence in the United States. Ooh, well, that, that is something I'm interested in. So we'll be in touch and you can let me know when that's coming up so I can review that and we'll have you back on. Oh, fantastic, Chris. Thank you very much. Absolutely. So yeah, thanks for coming on. And I will link all that stuff down in the description and we'll be talking again soon. Wonderful. Thank you. Have a good one. All right, everybody, that was my chat with Kathleen about her book, A Field Guide to White Supremacy. And yeah, again, I I learned a ton from talking with her. And yeah, feel free to let us know. Let me know. Let Kathleen know. You can comment on this uh, Twitter thread where I tweet out the episode. Let us know what you think about her uh, her fence analogy. You know, it, it, it started to make sense to me. And, you know, I'm starting to look at these structures and, you know, everything like she's saying, these different uh components of white supremacy in a, in a different way and seeing, you know, what, what we can do, what I can do, what you can do and all these other things, you know what I mean? Because, uh, I actually have an episode coming out with David Smith as well. We talked about dehumanization, like as much as I wish these problems were like gone and had disappeared, you know, there's still things that we deal with. So I'm super glad, um, you know, Kathleen and the other authors of this book, you know, are, are focused on this and writing about this. And it's a great, great, great book. So make sure you head down to the description, follow Kathleen, grab a copy of the book. It drops tomorrow. And like I mentioned over on Kathleen's Twitter, there's a 30% off code. All right. But yeah. While you're down in the description, make sure you're following me at The Rewired Soul on Instagram and Twitter. You'll see my post, Rewire Your Anxiety, is on sale until tomorrow. It's only 99 cents. And if you want to support the podcast in a way that is 1,000% free, make sure, make sure that you tell somebody. Share the episodes. If you think this was a good episode, share it. All right, share with other people. If you like any of the episodes of any of these authors that you think people might benefit from them, share them out there, all right? Some other ways is uh, you can support the podcast by making sure you're following and subscribed. And if you have two seconds, just two seconds, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review. That helps out a lot, all right? But yeah, lastly, there's also an affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. So as mentioned, you know, I've struggled with anxiety and my mental health, and a lot of you know I'm in recovery as well. And BetterHelp Online Therapy is a service I personally use. So if you want to get some affordable therapy that you can do from the convenience of your own home, check out that affiliate link for better help. All right. So another huge thanks to Kathleen for coming on. And yeah, for all of you, thanks so much for tuning in and make sure that you're staying tuned because we have so many great episodes coming up this week. We're going to be talking about, uh, we're going to be talking about science denial. We're going to be talking about, uh, healthcare for women and how like women are legitimately dying. There's a brand new book coming out this week. And then also later this week, I have, john mcwarder coming on to talk about his new book as well so make sure that you're staying tuned you'll never miss an episode if you're following the podcast and you're following me on social media all right but anyways have an amazing rest of your day and i'll see you next time